Welcome to Season 6 of KnowledgeCast, hosted by Jack Williams. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about this season and also listen to previous seasons at jackwwilliams.com slash podcast. In addition to Season 6 of KnowledgeCast, did you know that Jack is an author too? The second edition of his book called The Question, A Guide to Answering Life's Most Important Question is now available in paperback and ebook on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Jack shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide all aspects of his life. Already read the first edition? Then share this book with someone and also leave a review on Amazon to help Jack guide even more people on how to answer life's most important question. You can learn more about the question on Jack's website too at jackwwilliams.com. Now let's listen to an all new episode of KnowledgeCast Season 6. Well, welcome to our sixth season of Knowledge Cast. Glad that you joined us today. And if you're a first time listener, welcome. And if you're one of our regulars, thank you for coming back. Well, it's a real privilege to have Admiral Sandy Winnefeld uh, with us today. Admiral Winnefeld is a graduate of Georgia Tech with a degree in aerospace engineering. Now, I had to get that Georgia Tech connection in, even though he obviously studied in different parts of the library than I did with his aerospace engineering degree. And just a little side note for those non-tech folks, people don't talk about when they graduated to Georgia Tech. They ask, when did you get out? It's kind of like a rite of passage. Sorry for that little short detour. Um, Admiral Winterfield spent 37 years in the U.S. Navy. He was a graduate and instructor at the Navy Fighter Weapons School, also known as Top Gun. He commanded the USS Cleveland and the infamous USS Enterprise aircraft carrier. And before retiring, Admiral Winterfield served as the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He currently serves in professorship roles at several institutions as a public author. And I strongly encourage you to pick up his book, Sailing Upwind and serves as a director or advisory board member for several companies. Admiral, uh, let me say welcome to KnowledgeCast and, and thank you for your lengthy time of service to our country. Well, Jack, it's a pleasure to be with you and with your listeners today. Well, and I really enjoyed your book. And in, in that book early on, you made reference to the fact that you learned to sail at an early age. And you mentioned in the book that uh, that turned out to be a valuable experience uh, later when you were, became a naval officer. How, how did that experience help you? You know, I uh, spent sixth, seventh, and eighth grade in living in San Diego. Uh, so I learned to sail on San Diego Bay at this wonderful Navy sailing center. And that had a, a, a really a profound influence on my life and career, the things that I learned doing that at a very young age. Uh, you know, uh, learning to manage a, a complex machine uh, to absolutely maximize its performance, uh, to closely observe, you know, an adversary that you might be racing against to determine, you know, what is he trying to do to me? What is he doing tactically? Uh, formulating my own tactics real time based on, you know, wind, weather, see what my, uh, you know, how the course is going, what my adversaries might be doing. Uh, doing this uh, while doing something physically difficult. And some people, you know, people don't think of sailing as being physically difficult. But if you're in a little dinghy and the wind is strong, uh, you're working your tail off uh, and it, it can be cold and unpleasant. Um, uh, knowing the rules of the game uh, and how to leverage them uh, to your favor. And then uh, certainly uh, commanding a ship, uh, understanding the effects of wind and tide and how that, you know, how, how you have to take that into account while you're trying to, 
navigate on the ground. So all of that was useful to me, both uh, as a fighter pilot, uh, as a ship captain, and even bureaucratically later on in my career. So very glad I ended up doing that as a young kid. Yeah, those winds change bureaucratically, don't they? <laughs> they certainly do. And you have to know the rules and how to use them to your your benefit. Well, let's, let's, that's a good lead into the fighter pilot role. Uh, you mentioned in your book just a long list of things that come into play when you're learning to what you referred to fighter stuff. Uh, share a little bit some of those items that uh, come into play when you're learning to fly. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite an experience, and uh, the good news is that in the, in the U.S. military, whether you're an Air Force Marine or Navy pilot, the training is exceptionally good. So you've got that on your side, but you still have to learn the thing yourself. And and if you're a Navy fighter pilot, you have to not only learn to be a fighter pilot, you have to learn to land on an aircraft carrier day and night. Uh, so that's I think we'll probably talk about that a little later on, but that's an important skill set. But, you know, you begin by, uh, you know, basically understanding how to maneuver your airplane to maximize this performance, as we talked about a moment ago, and racing a sailboat. Uh, and you begin by uh, trying to master one versus one aerial combat, just you against another airplane. And it, it's a very complicated, physically demanding, sort of swirling uh, experience that uh, is is very difficult to to master, but like a lot of other things, you sort of reach these little plateaus along the way where you get a little bit better, and you know uh, intellectual uh, understanding opens up to you along the way. And then once you do that, you get into you know two versus two, uh, where you might actually do a an intercept starting at thirty miles using your radar, and then you get to what we call merge plot, where now you've got four airplanes in the same chunk of sky maneuvering, trying not to run into each other, trying to keep sight of each other, trying to basically simulate shooting at each other, and 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 working with your wingman to try to make that happen uh, to the best of your ability, and then it gets into multi-plane engagements. And as you as you progress in this learning journey, you have to learn how to teach it to other uh, people coming into the business. So it's a it's a very complex skill. It's like uh, uh, playing chess and boxing at the same time. Uh, and uh, it just you, you just have to really concentrate uh, on your own learning. You have to have great teachers. Uh, and it's a great joy to, to figure it all out as you get along the way. That's a great analogy. And, and you got to throw in there also you're dealing with some G-forces uh, from time to time as well. You are, uh, you know, while you're trying to uh, do all these things, you, you could be uh, sustained six and a half, seven G's. Uh, you know, the blood is trying to leave your head. Uh, and you, so you have a G suit trying to force it back up into your head, but you're also grunting, literally grunting, tightening your stomach the whole time to try to force the blood up into your brain so that you don't lose consciousness. Amazing. Which is a bad thing, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would not be high on your priority list, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, you staying with the pilot theme there. You you attended Top Gun both as a pilot and then later you became an instructor. Why, you know, everybody's heard of Top Gun. Why is that training uh, experience just so special? Well, first of all, it goes back to the roots of Top Gun, where uh, during the Vietnam War, we discovered that uh, our kill ratio versus uh, North Vietnamese pilots or other nations' pilots who were flying North Vietnamese airplanes was not as as good as it needed to be. And so the Navy decided to, to create a, a school of, of you know, exceptionally uh, good pilots and uh, naval flight officers <clears throat> to try to you know train the trainer so that the people who could go back to these various fighter squadrons and and basically up the game. <clears throat> so that's what, why it started. So so the people that they try to bring in as, as instructors are are a, a sort of a special breed of people who are actually good at what they do, but also good at teaching it. 
and, and so that's important. So what, uh, as you grow into being a Top Gun instructor, um, it's it's really uh, you know you have to be the best at, at at your craft and you know maneuvering precise G and airspeed, managing your weapon system, keeping sight of your opponents, not running out of gas while you're doing it, doing it under G, thinking tactically. And also, while you're uh, sort of uh, the lead person in this flight, making sure that everything's done safely, because these are very expensive machines and you don't want to lose one. Uh, you have to be able, when the flight's over, and you might have had two or three different um, engagements during this particular flight, you have to be able to get to a two-dimensional surface, a whiteboard, and actually debrief this swirling fight in three-dimensional three fight in, in two dimensions. And you have to be able to explain the why behind the what. Uh, not just here's what happened, but here's actually why it happened and what we maybe could have done better. Uh, and uh, and then you have to um, do this thing that, you know, fighter pilots have, you know, sometimes a little bit of an ego. You have to be able to do this while what we call keeping the who out of it. So <laughs> I might be, you know, in and in a, in a, have fought against an F-18. And instead of saying, well, why did you go in the vertical at that particular moment? It might be, well, what was the F-18 thinking? You know, taking the who out of it is, is just right. terribly important skill set. And then on top of that, you have to be able to be a good teacher in the classroom. Uh, and you know, you've heard the term murder board before. That was actually invented at Top Gun, where yeah. if you want to give a one-hour lecture to a class, you do it in front of the instructors first, and you have an eight-hour debrief on your one-hour class. Good gracious. It goes into every single thing that you did from your hand movements to how you explain the topic and whether you taught it effectively. And, then, and while you're doing all of this and you realize you're, personally you're getting better and better at it, you have to manage your own ego because that's your biggest enemy in this business uh, is your own ego. So it's, it's a, uh, it is it is a life-changing experience to go there as an instructor. And uh, and in the midst of it, you know, instructor is very competitive, but, but positive peer pressure was the culture of that squadron. Uh, and, and it amplified everything that we did. You know, that going through that review board, uh, I'm sure that I'm sure the uh, Navy and and uh, Top Gun folks have thought about it, but what what a tremendous uh, resource to have available to anybody who is presenting, just not not in that in that arena by itself. You you made an interesting point that not only do you have to be qualified uh, and an expert in what you do, but you've got to be able to teach. There's a lot of people that are really really good at what they do, but they're not able to transfer that knowledge in a way that someone wants to learn it. And so that that is a very unique skill. That's a, that's an awful lot of time in terms of prepping for a one hour session. Oh, it is. And you'll do pre-murder boards with, you know, where you'll if you're smart, you'll divide and conquer where, you know, you might grab a, a, a particularly influential instructor, particularly if you're a, a young instructor uh, and give the brief to them one on one and accept their critique. So you sort of understand before you go into the big one. Uh, where everybody's coming from and and the mistakes that you made before, you know, you actually get in front of the big kind audience. Of, kind of giving you the old cliff notes term, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a smart thing to do. Well, you referenced this just a second ago. And, and um, as a pilot, a Navy pilot, uh, one of the most challenging skills that you have to master is obviously landing on an aircraft uh, on, on the deck of an aircraft carrier. And there is obviously a very elaborate training process to be able to master that skill kind of share the progression that a pilot goes through before he feels comfortable and certified if you will to be able to make that type of landing sure um i call landing on an aircraft carrier the ultimate in motorsports 
uh, except the, <laughs> you know, the pay is not as good and the road trips are longer, right? Yeah. Uh, so first, you know, you have to master the basics of just sort of flying an airplane and understanding, uh, you know, seat of the pants and technically how that all works. But then you get into this very focused discipline of landing an airplane on an aircraft carrier. And in, in order to hit that extremely precise spot, which is about the size of a tennis court uh, with a high speed, high performance tactical aircraft, aircraft. Uh, you have to you have to do three things really well. You have to be able to uh, very precisely ma master your airspeed within one or two knots uh, all the way down. And the reason for that is you have to get the angle of the airplane just right so that the tail hook will catch. And uh, if you're too fast, you can damage the, the airplane or the tail hook. And if you're too slow, you can obviously stall out and crash. So you have to get that airspeed perfect. You also have to manage a perfect glide slope because if you don't get the glide slope right, you're never going to hit the right spot. And then because uh, an aircraft carries a very tight uh, area, the landing area, and their airplanes parked literally on either side of that thing right up to what we call the foul line, you have to be very precise on your lineup. And so while you're, you're managing airspeed, angle of attack, and glide slope, you have to understand that each one of those influences the other. So that if I have to make a little lineup correction by dipping a wing, that takes lift away and I have to add power in order to maintain my glide slope. And then I have to make a counter correction and a counter counter correction. And what you end up learning is that this is a very right brain activity. You know, left brain processes in series, right brain processes in parallel, and you have to be able to process all these three balls that you're juggling at the same time uh, in, in parallel, not series. And you end up, it's, it, it almost feels like energy management. If I'm a little high, but I'm a little slow, well, my energy is right, but it's in the wrong place. Hmm. Or if I'm high and fast, I have way too much energy and I got to get rid of some by pulling some power, but then I got to correct and counter counter correct. And then it, while you're doing all of that, it's helpful to know how the lens that guides you down works and the arresting gear and the catapults. Uh, and it's kind of like a catcher understanding how the baseball field works. And, uh, and then you have to uh, learn to manage your own brain in terms of emotion, adrenaline, and anxiety, particularly when you are young and you're doing it at night for the first few times. Because at night, uh, you know, around a civilian airfield, there's all kinds of cues out there, you know, front porch lights, street lights, runways long. You, you have a very keen sense of, of, of depth perception at sea. It's pitch black, particularly on a no moon night under the under an undercast. It is just as black as black can be. And all you have is that little aircraft carrier down and you're trying to land on it. And you have to master your own emotions because it's really easy to get tensed up. Uh, that, so and that aircraft carrier is not just sitting still for you either. It's moving. It's it's moving. Uh, and, and the wind uh, over the deck is different every time. And unlike a, a shore where you have thousands of feet of runway, you're trying to plant this thing in a little spot where the wind may be, you know, five, 10 degrees off center line. It may be a uh, high wind, maybe low wind. And you've got to sort of, uh, as you grow older, you start to, to read the clues of, of what's really happening out there. And uh, like any profession, you, you start to build those nuances and you get better and better at, at sensing what's going on around you and you can be more precise. But I'll tell you the first time I, I do not remember my first day carrier landing, I don't remember my first night carrier landing. It's that intense. Yeah, well, it's not one of those things that two out of three is okay. Uh, yeah, there's no points for second place, as we say. That's right. <laughs>
And you know what's interesting about it is is this is a meritocracy of all meritocracies. Oh yeah. The back of the boat doesn't care if you're a man or a woman or black or white. Doesn't care what your religion is. You know you gotta you gotta hit that spot. Uh, and you're dealing, as you said, with the with the ego of a fighter pilot. On top of that, there you um, go. So, and every uh, landing is graded, by the way, uh, not just with a letter grade, but every step of your approach coming down is given a, a an adjective description. And and the reason for that is we we want people to lay trends. It's like baseball hitters. You know, hey, I have a hard time with low and outside fastballs. Well, you you can lay your trends on top of it hmm. and actually make yourself better. Uh, hey, my my starts are a little bit low. I need to bump up my pattern a little bit. You know, uh, it's it's a very uh, intense experience. I have the licensing rights to the Apollo 13 movie um, to do uh, leadership training. And, and in my research, I remember Jim Lovell talking about one of his nighttime uh, landings when his uh, instrument gears went out. Oof. And there he was. He was talking about the pitch black. And uh, he said, but all of a sudden the algae that was churned up in the wake of the ship was actually just directing him right to, to, to the, uh, to the aircraft carrier. He hmm. said, you know, if, if his, if his lights had not gone out, he would have never seen the algae and would have never, you know, make it, he was running low on fuel. It was a re real interesting uh, story as he told it. Yep. What he didn't mention was he was the one that messed up his, his own instrumentation. He's the one that did created the short, but, uh, yep. Uh, he said, "Yeah, he he went in great detail, not not in as detail as you did, but but about the intensity associated with you know landing, particularly a night landing like that." Well, and you know when you have a situation like that, uh, you know you lose your instruments, or let's say you have a hydraulic failure or an engine failure, you cannot panic. You 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 just can't. You have to say to yourself, "Okay, I got a few things I got to do here, and I got to find some alternate instrumentation, or I've got to you know manage this airplane because you got to get you got to land it." <laughs> yeah, you don't get any attaboys for effort on that one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you you commanded a nuclear powered aircraft carrier, and um, in your book you talked about before taking command, you have to as a commander you have to demonstrate uh, superior knowledge in in three key areas that relate to that carrier. What are those, and why is it so important that you have to be an expert in each one of those? Yeah, you know, commanding a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier is the most exhilarating and uh, sleep-depriving thing that I've ever done in my life. <laughs> um, and it's not long, you know, after you take command of one of those things, and probably beforehand, that you realize there are those three disciplines that you absolutely have to master. And the first one is you have to have an acute understanding of how flight operations work around an aircraft carrier, because what the carrier is doing, turning, wind, um, speed, you know, whatever, you know, is fundamentally going to impact that. And, and, and it's very important that you as the, as the carrier CEO understand what's going on around in the air around the carrier. Second, you have to master uh, nuclear propulsion because how that nuclear propulsion plant is working is a, your responsibility as the captain of the ship, but it also profoundly impacts how you operate. Um, and, and, you know, you actually physically sign for those reactors when you take command of the ship. And then third, you have to be able to operate a, a, a ship on the surface of the sea safely. You know, you don't run aground, you don't run into other ships, and sometimes you're doing uh, operations that really restrict your ability to maneuver, whether you're doing flight operations or you're actually literally tied to it alongside another ship taking fuel or uh, other supplies. And what you realize is that you have people on the ship with you who have deep expertise in one of those things. The nuclear propulsion operators on the ship are amazing in that. The, the people who 
navigate the ship on the surface of the sea are amazing at that. The 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 air boss who's been a carrier aviator his or her whole life uh, gets that. But you're the only, the single only person on the ship that understands all three. And all three influence each other and they matter. And when you realize that, you go, wow, this is such a cool job. Because I really literally am the only person here who has all three. Um, and it, it's quite a quite an amazing experience to be the captain of a carrier. Well, I can only imagine that. Uh, and you talked about that 24-7. Uh, uh, there, there are very few breaks in that situation. Yep, absolutely. Again, you shared in your book, uh, you talked about the five anchors. Share share with us about that. Yeah, the uh, you know leadership, I've always believed, is a, is a lifelong journey of learning. And, you know, it, it requires a study. It, uh, you know, reading about, you know, either biographies of leaders or books about leadership, it requires observation uh, of both good and not so good leaders, because we can learn from both of them. Uh, and it requires practice, you know, run to the sound of the guns, take every opportunity you can to be a leader. But it really helps to have some sort of a framework in your mind, on which to hang, you know, the knowledge that you that you gain uh, as a leader. And I felt that it was important for me personally to be able to uh, have that framework on my own. And I slowly developed it. And all of the things that I learned sort of naturally fell into these five bins that you referred to, Jack. And the first one is uh, is uh, maybe a little counterintuitive, but it's about leading yourself, mm -hmm. developing yourself. Uh, and, you know, things like character, uh, uh, knowing lifelong learning, knowing your stuff, uh, committing to your job or leaving your job, uh, and then managing your brain, you know, managing stress, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, and managing your own ego. The second anchor uh, was um, obvious, leading people, individuals, which, you know, is about building an awesome team. Uh, it's about connecting with the people on that team. It's about um, a magical thing that Colin Powell uh, described to me one time of, of combining um, the highest possible standards with taking the best possible care of your, your people and how that is a magical combination and how sort of trust is the coin of the realm. The third anchor is uh, about leading organizations, which is sort of a technical thing, but you know it's about firmly establishing the culture of your organization. It's uh, thinking strategically. It's about understanding how power works in an organization, and then uh, very, very importantly, communicating both inside your organization and outside the organization. Uh, the fourth anchor is about leading execution. Uh, you know, and that is about learning how to, to to decide. And it's surprising how many leaders just aren't very good at making decisions. Uh, another is driving excellence into your organization. Uh, the framework I have for that, uh, I derive from the Navy Nuclear Propulsion Committee, which has an amazing uh, set of principles for that. Uh, it's about embracing risk and adversity rather than running away from it. Uh, and then, of course, measuring your organization's performance wisely. Uh, and we can get into that. And then the last one, and probably one of my favorite ones, is, is leading change, uh, which is exhilarating. Uh, and, you know, that's about challenging all of the assumptions that you're you're operating under. It's about actually, as a leader, either leading the creative process or setting the conditions for a creative process. Uh, and then uh, overcoming resistance, which is uh, something that happens in conjunction with trying to lead change. And then the last thing is sort of what I call sailing up wind. And that is, uh, you know, have you know, courage, initiative. It's amazing how many great ideas are out there that fall to the cutting room floor because people just don't have the gumption to go out and execute them. So those those five uh, anchors are, are anytime I, and I continually learn to this day things about leadership. And 
I almost always can attach what I learned to one of those uh, anchors uh, that I've described. Well, those are some those are some wonderful fundamental truths about leadership. Uh, I'm, I'm making notes as we go here. Uh, well, let's talk about a pretty memorable event in in your career. I would think you were commander of the USS Enterprise, and you just finished a pretty long deployment, and we're heading home, and all of a sudden this thing called nine eleven occurred. And then tell us what happened uh, with you and your uh, ship at that time. Sure. There's a little bit of folklore that goes along with that, but I'll describe to you what that was like. Uh, you know, we were leaving the Strait of Formos. We were off the coast of Oman going as fast as we could uh, because we were going to be the first ever uh, nuclear carrier visit to South Africa. And we were all looking forward to that. We had all the airplanes buttoned up, you know, for high speed transits and that kind of stuff. And I got a phone call at uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon from my safety officer. And this was around nine o'clock in the morning back in the, on the East Coast of the United States because of the time difference. He said, you need to turn the TV on. So I turned it on. And at that moment, the first tower had been hit. And there was a lot of commentary and confusion on the on the TV about, hey, you know, we don't know what's happened here. Was it a, you know, a little pilot ran into a building or was it a terrorist attack? And at that moment is when I saw the second tower get hit. And it was very obvious at that point that we weren't going anywhere. So we slowed the ship down. The folklore there is that I threw my white scarf over my shoulder and said, let's turn Enterprise around and we're going to head towards Afghanistan. It wasn't quite that simple. That's not how things really work. But but uh, in fact, we did later that evening uh, start heading uh, towards the coast of Afghanistan. And, and the lesson for me there was that, um, uh, you know, very often in an organization, people will bring you the leader their problems, expecting you to solve them for them. And we were in a situation there where we had to be off the coast of Afghanistan the very next morning, ready to fight if we needed to. So we had to, uh, my navigator came to me and said, well, uh, Captain, we've got to go 25 knots to get to our assigned station uh, by the morning. And all of my aircraft maintainers are saying, well, Captain, we've got to move these aircraft elevators and get our airplanes back ready, configured for combat. And we're only allowed to run elevators at 20 knots. So what are we going to do? Uh, and the, the solution was fairly obvious. Like, okay, guys, we're going to go 30 knots <laughs> and, and we're going to position all the airplanes, you know, for elevator moves. And when we're ready to move them all at the same time, we'll slow to 20 knots. We'll do the elevator moves down and then back up again. And we'll accelerate back to 30 knots while we get ready for the next set of elevator moves. And we'll average 25 knots. And it's like, duh, you know, yeah. but, but it's one of those things that leaders do. Uh, they, they are the ones who see the big picture and sometimes can come up with the answer when everybody's bringing them their problems. So long story short, we ended up off the coast ready to go the next day. And we had to wait a month while all the diplomacy and everything worked its way out. But we were among the very first strikes to go into Afghanistan to uh, to try to take out uh, Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, the people who had attacked our nation uh, so viciously. Well, that's quite a story. Well, you served on the, the staff of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during two presidential administrations and later served as vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, in in that capacity, you uh, probably spent more time in the, in, than you would have liked in the Situation Room there at the White House. But I, I loved uh, what you talked about in your book about some rules that you had when you were invited in uh, prior to uh, an op beginning. And share with uh, the, the advice, let's say, that you shared with some pretty uh, high-level executives. Sure. Uh, you know, probably 1,200 meetings in the White House sit room over the course of four years. So I spent I spent a lot of time there, along with all the other jobs I had to do in the Pentagon, like, uh, you know, acquisition of you know investment strategies for what the Pentagon was going to do and people. 
but uh, it was really interesting to be in that group of of actually very bright individuals, both administrations, who who have the best interests of the nation at heart and are working very hard. And, and among many other things in that in that particular role, I was the sort of grease in the machinery between uh, the the lead decision makers in the White House, including the president, and our special operations forces when they needed to do some kind of an operation outside a theater of war like Afghanistan or Iraq. So I'm talking about rescuing a hostage in Somalia or capturing a terrorist in some other country. And I would go brief them and 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 get the approval for the operation. Uh, and then when it came time to execute this special operation, I would bring uh, some special operators to the White House, literally, and we would set up communications equipment so that um, a specially chosen staff could actually sit in the room and observe the operation as it went down from the from the eye in the sky of a UAV, you know, a predator or a reaper or something like that. And I, I told them, you know, before we never had a, a problem with any leaks before because people realized what was at stake, you know, American lives, hostage lives, whatever. And the rule was, um, you can ask any question you want, and I'll I'll do my best to answer it. Uh, but what you what we will not do when this while this operation is ongoing is a ask any questions of the people on the ground because they're way too busy right now to receive questions from the White House. It's the last thing they want, and we're certainly not going to give them any guidance. We're just going to watch. And it was actually very good for them to be able to see this. And the whole intent was for them to uh, build confidence in our special operations forces by watching how professionally they executed their operations. And also for them to be able to speak credibly when it was over about uh, what actually happened, whether it went well or whether it didn't go well. And they usually obviously went well, but sometimes there were some hiccups. So it was it was really useful for them to be able to watch, but they had to obey the rules and they always did. So before it, before it went live, you you entertained questions, and after that, they were observers only, correct? Yes, they, they could ask me questions in the room, yeah. but we wouldn't pass those questions downrange to the people executing the operation. So they might go, hey, wh what's going to happen next? Uh, and I say, well, you should, you should expect to see this. Uh, but that stayed in the room. It didn't go downrange. I got you. And the most important, actually, you know, when the operation is like, at, at its climax, when it's almost over, like, the, you know, it looks like, you know, they're engaged, they're rescuing the hostage. Uh, the, the big temptation for the White House would be, how'd it go? Did, did you get the hostage? Did anybody get hurt? You know, but it's like, no, they'll tell us when they're ready, because they're a little busy right now. Uh, uh, that's, that's great. That, that would be fascinating. Uh, like that's that's a poor choice of words. I, I can't describe what it would be like to to be experiencing that firsthand. Well, with your vast experience in uh, international affairs, what do you think? What do you feel today presents the biggest threat to our country? Jack, I, it's a really important and a really good question. Uh, I, I personally believe that the biggest threat we face today is our own uh, political divisiveness. And you know, I, I believe that you know, if you if you go back to uh, right after World War II, you know, we had sort of a bell curve distribution in our country of political views. You know, big hump around, you know, the middle, and some people a little bit on the right, some people a little bit on the left. But you know, pretty much we all got along and agreed on on certainly international uh, affairs questions. And I think with the advent of twenty four hour news media, 
where the where those individual channels had to had to seek a political view if they were going to really attract and retain an audience. You start to see that hump divide into two humps and and to start accelerating apart into sort of right humps and left left hump. And then when when you have the advent of social media, where any bozo can go viral uh, with a, a a wacky view, either on the far right or the far left, I don't care. I'm pretty I'm very very politically neutral here. Uh, those those humps started to divide into two, and so you started to see you know a far right, moderate right, moderate left, far left hump, and we're we're really struggling with that today. And when you when you zoom out and look at what I like to call long wave geopolitical cycles. You know, from the you know Thirty Years' War to the Napoleonic Wars to world the World Wars to today, those long wave geopolitical cycles always end, and they don't end in a pretty way. They usually end in a bloody way. And so, if you start asking, well, well, how did they end? Uh, it, it's usually because a prevailing power had a couple of things going on where they overextended themselves financially, deficits, what have you. They over overextended them some themselves sometimes. Uh, in, in operating in conflicts where they didn't really belong, that weren't necessarily in their most vital interests. And they ended up with a lot of political divisiveness that, that distracted them. And to go back to the sailing metaphor, Jack, and I described this at one point in the book, you know, my, my best friend in high school and I were sailboat racers and we were really good. And one day we were in an East Coast championship race in a particular class of boat. And we're literally a mile ahead of the rest of the fleet, which is unheard of. And somehow we managed to get into a fight. I have no idea to this day what it was about. <laughs> we were literally in a fist fight on that boat over some stupid little adolescent high school thing. And all of a sudden, one of us looks up. I don't know if it was me or my friend. says, you know, if we keep fighting, uh, these guys are going to catch us. So we better quit fighting and solve this later on and trim our sails and finish this race. That's a perfect metaphor for what I think is happening in our country today. So that's the biggest threat. Beyond that, you know, deficits, I think obviously China, a rising China is is manifesting as a threat. Um, but we have to we have to get our own house in order first. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great analysis. Well, now that you have retired uh, from the service, how are you using all this incredible experience that you've developed? Now, what do you where are you spending your time now? Well, Jack, I have a theory that uh, nature will spit you out uh, if you're not busy, <laughs> uh, that if you just retire and if I just went off and played golf in Florida or something like that, that nature would very quickly tire of me and and I would be I would be gone. So I like, you know, and not everybody's that way, but I feel like I have to stay busy. So I'm on a number of uh, public and private uh, company boards, which has been a, a, one, a fascinating experience for me. I absolutely love uh, seeing how business works. I've learned it, uh, an awful lot there. And I think I've had the opportunity to contribute. Uh, I help a number of startup, uh, you know, technology startups. Uh, I uh, am a, an advisor to uh, what you could call a private equity firm. It's a merchant bank uh, that uh, caters to uh, family owned and family run businesses, which uh, which was real, all of this so far that I've described is a real delight to me because I wasn't sure uh, what kind of people I was going to be running into. You know, I, I really, uh, you know, enjoyed working with the people in the military, high ethics, high values, you know, that kind of thing. And I wasn't sure what I was going to find in the private sector. And, and maybe I've been lucky 
but I've run into some, I, I've had the opportunity to work some with great people in, in these things so far. I also, as you point out, I get a chance to teach at Georgia Tech, which is a real delight for me to be able to give back to that institution and to be around the young people who are there who are amazingly gifted. Uh, I have a nonprofit. My wife and I uh, have, a, have started a nonprofit that's intended to help uh, end the opioid epidemic as we actually lost a son to uh, an accidental overdose, a really good kid. Um, and uh, we felt like we should should give back there. And I also have my own podcast. It's called The Adrenaline Zone, which is where uh, what a great name. Fellow Georgia Tech uh, person, uh, Sandra Magnuson, and I, she's a retired astronaut. Uh, we interview people who take risk. And we've had some fascinating uh, and fun guests. So it's a it's a busy life, but uh, uh, I'm really much enjoying the people I get to work with. I'd say busy life would be an understatement. You may have to you may have to retire from that to to be able to go back into the service to get a break. There you go. I, I guess they call it failing retirement, right? <laughs> you know, my wife calls it rewirement. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, again, I want to recommend uh, your book, Sailing uh, Upwind. It's a great read, and I want to encourage our listeners to uh, to take advantage of that. Well, Admiral, it was a thrill um, having someone with your distinguished record of accomplishments uh, on our program, and I, I wish we really had more time to discuss in, in more detail some of your responsibilities, but I know you've got another commitment that you've got to get to today, and, and I just want to thank you for your insights and, and sharing your experiences with us. Well, Jack, it's been a pleasure to be with you. You're a terrific interviewer. Well, folks, thanks for joining us today. And I look forward to having you back with us next week as we spend time with another interesting guest. And until then, make sure you're being a positive influence in the lives of others. Thanks for listening to this episode of KnowledgeCast. Leave a review and share this episode with someone you know. In addition to KnowledgeCast, there are a lot more exciting things coming to Jack's website this year as he helps even more people be a positive influence in the lives of others. So visit jackwwilliams.com to stay up to date. We'll see you next week for an all new episode of KnowledgeCast.